This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the eminent historian Sir David Canadine about his new book, Victorious Century. The century in question, David, is the 19th as defined and dominated by Great Britain. What you call the terrible, fascinating, and creative age that was perhaps, in the end, something of an accident or an illusion. You tell a splendid story, David, but why was the victorious century, to borrow a phrase from Charles Dickens, both the best of times and the worst of times? Well, in general terms, uh, the uh, phrase from Charles Dickens that you quote is, of course, one of the two epigraphs to the book, um, the other one being uh, Marx's observation that men and women make their own histories, but not under circumstances of their own choosing. And the purpose of those two epigraphs was to try to suggest that one of the ways of understanding the British 19th century is that from one perspective, it was a century of success, power, wealth, dominance, unprecedented imperial expansion, which meant that Britain was in some ways at the summit of the world, but at the same time, it was a century of squalor, environmental degradation, life expectancy was only about 40, and there was often a widespread anxiety that such um, preeminence as Britain had rested on rather uncertain economic foundations and might not last. And so what I tried to do in the book in a very general way um, was to stress, uh, as it were, the contradictions of progress, the paradoxes of 19th century Britain, and to stress that the constraints under which the British people as individuals and the British nation and empire as uh, governmental structures themselves also operated. Well, tell us, you also have a wonderful way of dividing it. You begin with the Act of Union in 1800 and go forward to the election of 1906. And and that's not the usual way that people talk about the British 19th century. But what were the circumstances? What was the uh, feeling and the situation, uh, the mood of, of Britain in 1800. Well, it's true, as you say, that for most uh, historians who've written about the British 19th century, they tend to begin with the triumph of the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, and they end with the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, which is almost exactly 100 years. And uh, looked at like that, it seems to be a century of enormous success, although things are clearly not going to be so good after the First World War, even though Britain ended up on the winning side. I thought it would be interesting to try um, some different terminal dates. And so I begin this book in 1800 which is the occasion for of the passing of the Act of Union between Great Britain and Ireland, creating for the first time the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And that enabled me to begin by pointing out that um, things were not looking good in the Britain of the 1790s, partly because of the long-term anxieties as a result of the loss of the American colonies uh, not that long before, and partly because the wars with revolutionary 
revolutionary France in the 1790s weren't going very well. And one of the worries that the British ruling elite had was that France would incite rebellion in Ireland, which in fact they almost succeeded in doing, and uh, that France might even attack and conquer Ireland, which would then, of course, put Britain in a very vulnerable strategic position. So part of the purpose of the Act of Union was to kind of tie together the island of Great Britain and the island of Ireland uh, in, a, in a composite union over which uh, it was thought that the governing circles in London would have a greater degree of control. So it was, in a sense, um, motivated by strategic considerations, which were themselves born of very considerable anxiety. Um, the British might be celebrating in 1815, but it certainly wasn't clear in the late 1790s or even in the early 1800s that that was going to be the outcome. But what were the economic circumstances in, let's say, 1800 in, in London? I mean, these are years of depression and uneasiness. Well, they right? were years of very considerable economic depression and uneasiness, uh, of high unemployment, of what was thought in certain quarters to be quasi-revolutionary popular activity. There were mutinies in the British fleet. Um, it all looked rather grim. Um, and while in retrospect it seems easy to say that the British were bound to triumph over the French uh, in 1815, it certainly did not look like that at the time. And of course, the Treaty of Amiens early in the 19th century produced a temporary halt to the uh, wars against Britain and France. But at that point, um, it certainly didn't look as though it would all come out well for the British. And even after the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, uh, Nelson's um, triumphant uh, victory over the French uh, and the Spanish fleets, um, it still wasn't clear for another five or six or seven years that the British were going to win because although they were preeminent at sea, Napoleon was preeminent on land and that was a kind of strategic stalemate which it proved very hard to break. After 1815, we, uh, the prosperity begins to intrude. I mean, the first uh, glorious benefits of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, the, I mean, this is the age of the Romantic poets. Well, uh, it's certainly true that um, eventually, of course, the British do succeed in beating um, Napoleon, partly because in 1812 he makes the great mistake of invading Russia, and that's never a good idea, as, of course, Hitler would later discover, and that, in a sense, breaks the stalemate, uh, because Napoleon begins to be defeated on land in a way that hadn't been true before. And the ultimate end point of that is was the Battle of Waterloo, where the Duke of Wellington led an Allied army that, in the end, did defeat Napoleon on land. Um, but, of course, in the immediate after aftermath of Waterloo, there was yet another downturn in the British economy in the late 1810s. And it's not until really the early 1820s that for a certain period up until 1826, the economy began to uh, pick up and the benefits of early industrialization gradually, but only very gradually, began to trickle down. But of course, what is interesting is that while uh, the Napoleonic Wars are going on and while the economy is um, going from boom to slump rather rapidly. Um, this was in many ways a kind of golden age of British culture in terms certainly of art and in terms of um, novel writing. Uh, Jane Austen, of course, being preeminently the novelist of the, the 1800s and the early 1810s. So one of the points that I try to make in the book is that 
not all the stories head in the same direction, as it were, um, that golden ages of culture don't necessarily align with the economic and social circumstances of ordinary people. And uh, for quite a lot of the 19th century, that was true. Uh, the 1840s, again, was another very turbulent and troublesome decade. It wasn't for nothing that it was called the Hungry Forties, um, uh, partly because, again, the economy turned down at the beginning of the 1840s and again at the end in Britain, and also of course because it saw the great famine in Ireland in which as a result of which millions of people died so one of the worries that many people have right the way through to the end of the 1840s is they don't quite know what this thing that later becomes called the Industrial Revolution was they don't necessarily think it's working they're not sure that Britain is headed in the right direction and it's only later um, when it seems to have come good that those early years of trouble and turbulence are in a way represented as the essential preparation for the, the mid-Victorian era of prosperity that comes later. Yes, I think you say somewhere in the book that we tend to have a nostalgic view of the early 19th century and look, look back on it uh, longingly uh, in a romantic way, but we're well off to leave that world well behind, as, as you say, I think. Yes, I mean, it's, it's sometimes the fashion, of course, Mrs. Thatcher made great ploy with what she called Victorian values. It's sometimes the fashion in certain parts of Britain to say that we must get back to the 19th century because this was the time when Britain was enormously prosperous and when it owned or ran large parts of the world. It was a kind of global Britain that has an appeal, for instance, to Brexiteers in, in, in the United Kingdom to this day. But uh, in the first place, I don't think there is any realistic likelihood of getting back to that. And in the second place, even if we could, I'm not sure we should want to, because in many ways, for many people, the 19th century was not a very pleasant time to be living in. Um, and there was a downside to the successes that undeniably Britain had. I mean, in the, in the 1880s, Charles Booth, the social investigator, discovers that um, one third of the people living in London, almost a third of the, 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 the population of London, the biggest, richest, greatest city in the world, were living in poverty. And that was after the period of mid-Victorian prosperity when it was supposed that the benefits of industrialization would, would trickle down to most people. Talk about... Well, we'll say a few words about Queen Victoria, who gives her name to the century, and and uh, also play play on words the title of your book. I mean, she comes to the throne in 1837, and and, and she's in power, or she's the queen for the rest of the century. So that's right. Um she uh, she reigned for, as it were, two-thirds of the whole of the 19th century, from 1837 to her death in 1901. And many people easily conflate Victorian Britain with 19th century Britain. And, of course, there is a slight play on words in the title of the book that it's called Victorious Century, even though the British undergo quite a few defeats along the way. Victoria was, I think, extraordinary and extraordinarily important. Here is this woman... Uh, the regnant queen, because she's the only one of George III's grandchildren who survived long enough to succeed those of his sons who had briefly been monarchs. Um, a woman in a man's world. Remember, no women had the vote in 19th century Britain, not especially well-educated, um, but a person of extraordinary energy, 
um, and of a remarkably, I think, complicated temperament, who did live long enough to give her name to her age. The Victorian age is the last great age to which any long-lived British monarch has given their name. I don't think there will be an Elizabethan age for the present queen, even though she's lived uh, and reigned longer. But what Victoria did by virtue of being around for so long, I think, was to give a kind of unity to the years 1837 to 1901, and by extension, perhaps even to the years from uh, 1801 to 1901, which in other ways they really didn't possess. I think the late 19th century was in many ways a very different world from the mid-19th century, which was a different world from the early 19th century. But Yeah, talk about the mid-19th century first. Well, the mid-19th century was, I think, um, a different time from the the early 19th century. The early 19th century, a time of warfare, uh, warfare which before 1812, it wasn't clear the British were going to win, Uh, a time of uh, growing uh, industrialization, yes, a time of urban expansion, yes, but a time of serious economic ups and downs and vicissitudes, a time of very considerable political protest over the Great Reform Act passed in 1832 and then over Chartism later in the 1830s and the 1840s, a time when it really wasn't clear that industrialization was working or that the 19th century, the whole of the 19th century would, as it were, be Britain's 19th century. Whereas the 1850s, 60s and early 70s were, I think, a rather different time when prosperity and a more stable economy uh, did, I think, become uh, a rather different state of affairs from that which had pertained earlier on, uh, ushered in by the Great Exhibition of 1851 at Crystal Palace, which up to a point, only up to a point, but up to a point, was a celebration of Britain's economic preeminence across the Western world. And uh, in the 1850s and 60s and early 70s, uh, in Britain, things on the whole were more stable and more successful, um, and Britain's global reach extended. Of course, to set against that, there were such things as the Great Rebellion in India in 1857, uh, which was a huge jolt to British self-confidence, because um, there were times when it seemed as though Britain would actually lose its grip on India. Before that, there had been the Crimean War, which uh, contained many military disasters from the standpoint of the British, uh, such as the charge of the Light Brigade. So even in that era of uh, stability and order embodied in the personage of Lord Palmerston, the dominant figure of that time, there were worries and anxieties that Britain's international preeminence was not as unchallenged as people might like to think. And even the Great Exhibition, although from one perspective uh, a display of British industrial preeminence, was also motivated by anxiety because there were fears that in fact British manufactured goods were of lesser quality than goods being manufactured elsewhere in the continent of Europe. So, but also in the, in the middle in the middle century, it's 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 a feeling of optimism and of enormous creative energy, both scientifically and uh, artistically. I mean, you, you talk about the 1859, books published by Darwin, by J- John Stuart Mill on liberty, and I, I don't remember which novel by George Eliot or, or, or Dickens, but I mean, it's it's... And the notion of progress, I mean, I, I I was struck by your chapters on the middle 19th century and, and Mr. Buckle's history of 
English civilization and everything is up, upward and onward and so on. Essentially, David, I should tell you that as a grammar school child in the 1940s, I was educated. I was given a mid-Victorian education. That's mm. That was my program. <laughs> yes. Well, I think one of the things that is very interesting about uh, the mid-19th century Britain is, of course, that um, the majority of the population, although by then literate, were not very well educated. Most people left school before their teens. Um, but at the same time, Britain did produce this extraordinarily sophisticated literate culture uh, with uh, historians such as Macaulay and Buckle, with political theorists such as uh, the two Mills, um, and of course with Darwin, who in a sense completely changed the way eventually we looked at the world. And it was uh, an era in which Macaulay in particular was constantly saying things were getting better and better and better, and it was an era of progress and preeminence. And there was a widespread belief that Britain was the most, uh, was at the peak of civilization uh, across the whole of the world, and that within Britain itself, London was uh, the most civilized city in the world. And there was a very strong sense of all of that. But there's a wonderful contradiction which you point out. I mean, the East India Company is ravaging uh, India, mm. uh, plundering, uh, setting up the opium wars. And J.S. Mill, who writes on liberty, is also has some sort of a position with the East India Company. Is that not right? Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. I mean, again, these are the contradictions of progress that, uh, from one perspective, the mid-Victorian period was hugely successful. But from another perspective, uh, as you say, uh, there are various other things going on, such as the Great Rebellion in India, such as uh, the Opium Wars in China, uh, which would suggest a very different interpretation. That's to say a rapacious uh, empire seeking to ransack various parts of the world for its own economic benefit back in Britain. Um, and of course, to this day, the legacy of the British Empire uh, or a British engagement in the 19th century in places like China is still unforgotten and in certain places unforgiven. Uh, in the 19th century, British history takes place in more parts of the world than ever before, um, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. Um, and that's part of the the consequence of the extraordinary energy which, in a sense, the Industrial Revolution eventually unleashes. And, of course, these extraordinary emigration figures, as the British remain the preeminent nation exporting people to the world, as well as exporting goods and exporting capital and investment. And language. I and mean, language. I mean, it's fair to say that... that Britain or the United Kingdom, I mean, dominates the, the 19th century, even though it's a relatively small two islands, but it has uh, far greater influence out of proportion to its uh, geographical uh, and, and, and even, uh, you know, military uh, force. The, the, it dominates it intellectually, culturally, and, and, and politically. Yes, it is a very extraordinary story. These two small islands off the coast of Europe with um, a growing population, undeniably, an industrializing economy, undeniably, um, but nevertheless, 
still two small islands off the coast of Europe during the 19th century exercise a wholly disproportionate amount of influence and power over the rest of the world, culturally, as you say, uh, economically, certainly, um, politically, uh, and uh, imperially, um, and, of course, as the possessor of the greatest uh, navy, uh, both the Royal Navy and the Merchant Marine, that the world had ever seen. So it was a kind of extraordinary story that for a certain amount of time, these small islands generate a huge amount of economic uh, power. They have a surplus population which is exported around the world. And the combination of those two things, plus, I suppose, the defeat of France in 1815, mean that to some degree, the 19th century was indeed Britain's century. But it was in a sense a sort of flukish preeminence because it assumed um, or it, it, it was based, I think, in many ways on a European continent that was, after 1815, either quiescent or, as it were, self-absorbed, um, on an America, a United States, not yet uh, a preeminent power and, of course, riven by civil war, and on a relatively quiescent Asia and Far East. And that enabled the British to create both a, a formal imperial structure and an informal imperial structure on the cheap, um, because they never actually spent all that much money on their navy or on their imperial administration. But when, in the late 19th century, the climate and the geopolitical realities changed and the United States became a major economic power, Germany became a major economic power and a political and imperial rival, um, and nationalism erupted in Ireland, uh, in Egypt, and indeed in India from the 1880s on, after that, um, the British were much more on the defensive because they found themselves in a in a harsher international climate where it where Britain faced economic and military and imperial competition of a kind that from the 1830s to the 18, early 1870s it really didn't have to face and there's the irony i mean victoria's diamond jubilee is 1897 and the there's that magnificent parade, in which I've read many stories about. But yes, so that outwardly, the absolute dominance, Britain's absolute dominance of the world, is is there on full display. But inwardly, doubts have begun to appear. I mean, we have jubilation and recessional, as yes. you point out. Absolutely. Yes, G.M. Young, who wrote this wonderful book called Victorian England, Portrait of an Age, and he was himself a Victorian, had this line that there are certain moments of concentrated emotion which seem to sum up the purpose of an entire generation. And he described Victoria's Diamond Jubilee of 1897 as being exactly that, when, as it were, the empire came to Britain as the colonial troops from all these different parts of the world um, paraded on the streets of London and there was this extraordinary service on the steps of St. Paul's and there was Queen Victoria, the gaslit Gloriana, the matriarch of the largest empire the world had ever seen. And there was a huge amount of... Uh, cheering and pleasure uh, at all that and the narrative of the 60 years of Queen Victoria's reign appeared to be that everything was getting better and better in Britain um, and Britain was becoming more and more powerful around the world that if one compared the state of Britain and its empire in 1837 with 1897 things had hugely improved but of course that wasn't the whole of the story because by the 1890s Germany in particular and the United States represented serious economic threats to Britain in a way that they hadn't done uh, in the 1840s or 50s or 60s. 
the international environment was much more tense with colonial rivalries and with alliances in Europe. Um, and of course, Kipling produced this poem, Recessional, to coincide with the day of the great Jubilee service. But of course, Kipling offered a very different perspective. Um, Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. And Kipling's point in Recessional, as the title of the poem implied, was that worldly dominion was ephemeral and global dominance was transient. And of course, he was right. Exactly 100 years after 1897, when the empire was allegedly at its peak, 100 years later, in 1997, the last great British colony, Hong Kong, was handed back to China and the British Empire had ended. So a hundred years later, it had all gone. Why do you choose to end the book in 1906? Talk about the last, uh, you know, 20 odd years of, of, you know, Victoria's century and, and, and you're choosing to end in 1906. Well, again, having begun at a date that wasn't 1815, that's to say 1800, I thought I wanted to end with a date that wasn't 1914. And I thought the case for 1906 was that uh, it saw a huge triumph at the general election of that year of the Liberal government uh, or of the Liberal Party, which then formed a government that lasted uh, for the next 10 years. And from one perspective, it was the last great reforming government of the 19th century in the tradition of the, the government, in particular of Gladstone, uh, the earlier Liberal leader. But it was also, in a sense, the first great reforming uh, administration of the 20th century concerned with issues such as um, employment, welfare reform, the reform of prisons, uh, the uh, production, the creation of labor exchanges and so on, which were very much 20th century issues. So it seemed in a way a point at which, as it were, my version of the 19th century really was ending and, and um, the 20th century was uh, beginning. But what I also wanted to do was to point, was to, to, in choosing that date along with 1800, was to draw attention to the fact that 1800 was a piece of parliamentary legislation, the Act of Union with Ireland. 1906 was a general election, also, as it were, about parliament and public life. And that enabled me to stress that one of the themes of the book is the extraordinary continuity of the British Parliament across the period from 1800 to 1906, a legislative continuity which scarcely any other nation in the Western world could actually equal during that time. And the the, the supremacy of the British Parliament, the continuity of British public life, the avoidance of uh, domestic turbulence on a scale such as that in the United States in the 1860s, um, the avoidance of any uh, revolution such as occurred frequently in France in the 19th century, was an extraordinary feature of British uh, public life. And the dates of 1800 and 1906, the Act of Parliament and the general election, as it were, draw attention to that remarkable uh, continuity of legitimate legislative authority. And of course, it's all the more extraordinary given the astonishing traumas that Britain actually went through during that period in terms of population growth, industrialization, the Irish potato famine, and so on. Um, And that paradox of a nation in many ways going through wrenching changes yet its public institutions were remarkably stable, um, is is one of the, as it were, almost Charles Dickens-like contradictions that I tried to explore. In your introduction, if I remember it, I haven't got it in front of me, but I think you you say of yourself that you are a member of the last generation of the long 19th century. 
Am I... Yes. Do I remember that correctly? Yes, you do remember that correctly. I made the point that I was born in 1950, and the first decade of my life, I grew up in Birmingham, one of the great industrial towns of the 19th century. Uh, my grandparents had all been born in the 1880s and um, seemed to me to be terribly old and wore black all the time, as if in permanent mourning for Queen Victoria. Uh, they had stamps and letters from the late 19th century and atlases, which had strange places like Austria-Hungary that didn't exist anymore. And the Birmingham I grew up in was still in many ways the Birmingham of Joseph Chamberlain. Uh, that's to say it had a marvelous ensemble of civic buildings right in the middle, uh, Mason College, which became the university the Council House and Art Gallery at the Town Hall, the Birmingham Midland Institute at the Reference Library. And that was, um, uh, that had been created in the 19th century. Um, and most of those buildings, indeed all of those buildings, were still there in the 1950s. So that I did grow up um, in a city where, as it were, the 19th century was all around you. And of course, that city in particular, and indeed the whole of the British economy in general, was still underpinned by the great industries of the 19th century, coal, steam, cotton, wool, shipbuilding, which had been the, the industries that had made Britain economically so powerful in the 19th century and was still, although diminishingly, uh, underpinning the economy uh, that I grew up with in the 1950s. But that then gradually began to disappear in the 1960s. Large parts of Birmingham and other cities were demolished. Um, the Labour government of Harold Wilson from 1964 to 70 sought to dismantle the stern Victorian moral code with legislation about homosexuality and divorce and abortion um, and new buildings were put up in concrete and stain and plate glass which offered a very different as it were aesthetic from uh, the buildings of the 19th century and at the same time in the 1960s um, as as it were much of the physical fabric of the 19th century was disappearing the 19th century became for the first time a serious place of historical inquiry with writers like Asa Briggs and Eric Hobsbawm and Harold Perkin and F.M. Thompson and Robinson and Gallagher and Norman Gash working on the 19th century in a, a kind of serious, archivally based way in a manner that hadn't been true before. So I was lucky enough to live through the last decade where the physical remnants of much of the 19th century were still there, that's to say the 1950s, and then to grow up um, and start reading books and to go to university in the 1960s, the first decade really when the 19th century became a subject of serious historical study. So I got the best of both worlds in a sense, and perhaps that's why uh, I became a historian of the 19th century. Last question. You, you, you say again somewhere that the 19th century in some ways is still with us, and the, um, not only with the Irish question, but, but also in, in, in some of those attitudes about everlasting progress and, and uh, at least in, in, in the American, as far as I can see, the, the American uh, foreign policy people are, are still thinking of themselves as the British Empire. <laughs> well, it's certainly true. I think that Although in many ways I think the 19th century did end uh, in the 1950s. I mean, one can, of course, make other arguments that it ended earlier. Indeed, I'm, of course, suggesting in my book that one good line to draw is 1906. But one of the, uh, one of the ways of thinking about 20th and even 21st century Britain is that it did very much live in the shadow of the 19th century. And on the whole, for governments of the right, uh, the agenda was either to preserve the inheritance of the 19th century or to try to get back to it. 
hence Mrs. Thatcher on Victorian values and getting the Falklands back, whereas governments of the left were much more interested in dismantling the 19th century. Um, Indian independence in 1947 would be one example. The nationalization of these great industries um, would be another, which would deem no longer to be appropriately owned in, uh, by private individuals and shareholders. The dismantling of the Victorian moral code would be yet another. Um, and so for governments of the right, the 19th century should either be preserved or gone back to, whereas for governments of the left, it should um, be dismantled and got rid of. And now that's an oversimplification, but it's not entirely untrue. And certainly, I think that um, much of the argument in Britain about Brexit uh, rests on an assumption that we can somehow put the clock back to a version of the 19th century, which itself, I think, is rather fanciful. Um, well, where... well, well but, but that was the agenda of Ronald Reagan, as it is for Trump. I mean, to take America yes. back. Yes, And, and so. the, the, the America back that Reagan had in mind was the 19th century. Yes. No, indeed. I think that the 19th century is very appealing. And I think that uh, certainly for some American presidents, uh, they see America's destiny uh, in the 20th century as to being to... Uh, dominate the world in the way that Britain in the 19th century did. Um, and that, as it were, the, the, the 19th century was the British century, the 20th century was the American century. I think it's too soon to know, in fact, uh, which nation will dominate the world in the 21st century. It certainly won't be Britain. Um, there's no yeah, doubt I, I don't think it will be America either. But I mean, the, anyway, David, I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed your book. I mean, the, uh, I found it deeply instructive, magisterial, and, and the, um, thank you very much for speaking with me today on, on about Victorious Century by Sir David Canadine. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.